right, well, good morning again. I ask you to turn in your Bibles to the book of Philippians, Philippians chapter 2. You might want to turn that down just a little bit. Philippians chapter 2, if you'd stand with me, we'll pray, and we'll read from God's holy, life-giving, life-changing word, living word. Well, Father, we come to you because we're needy. As we've already said, so we ask, Lord God, as the old Scottish prayer, make the book alive to us, O Lord. Make the book alive to us for the sake of your kingdom. Amen. This is what God says to us today from the book of Philippians. Philippians chapter 2. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. Complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God as a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, so now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure." Do all things without grumbling or disputing, that you may be blameless and innocent children of God, without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights of the heaven, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run or in vain or labor in vain, even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith. I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope therefore to send him as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that I will shortly myself come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and and your messenger and minister to my need. For you have all been longing for, for he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because he heard Because you heard that he was ill, indeed he was ill, near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, as we've been going through Philippians, 
we've seen that the main point of Philippians, the purpose of Philippians, or the, the, the theme of Philippians, or, uh, is found in verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1, where Paul says this, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. The rest of the book of Philippians is an explaining of Verses 27 to 30 of chapter 1 of letting your manner of life being worthy of the gospel. Philippians is not a book necessarily of correction, but rather of exhortation to remind them of what it means to live a life worthy of the gospel. So we'll see four things today. We'll see the essentials. We'll see the example, the exhortation, and what I call the extras. You'll see what I mean by that. You know, things just tossed in there. Paul says, in order to live a life worthy of the gospel, you have to have the essentials of humility. The essentials of humility. In, in, in the Greek era, in the Greek time of which Paul lived, the Greco-Roman era, uh, to talk about humility was, was they did it in a derogatory way. You don't act humble. You don't be, you know, a, a, a person who is... You be someone who goes out there and grabs life by the horns. You make it all about you and for yourself. To be a servant, to care about others, was just, it, was, uh, it wasn't on the radar screen. It wasn't a way of thought. Paul's saying, in the kingdom of Christ, it's the exact opposite. Be humble. The first essential element of humility, there's three of them. He says, so if there's any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, and any participation of the Spirit, any affection and sympathy. The encouragement of Christ. If you have any encouragement, the word encouragement is periclesis. It means to call someone to be encouraged or consoled either by verbal or nonverbal means. You can also see like the word in there, periclete, to come alongside. If you have any encouragement in Christ. What kind of encouragement does Christ give us? Christ gives us the encouragement of the names that he puts upon his children. Loved, highly favored, secure, apple of my eye. These are the things that God says about his children. The encouragement of Christ is that you are his and that will never, ever change. If you truly belong to Christ, you are his. The encouragement of Christ is that you belong to him and not to this world. The allure and the pull of this world is great. We all want to be accepted. We want to have everybody in the world like us, right? That's why it's hard in the crowd. If the crowd is going this way, and this is something we've got to teach our children, that if, if, if your friends are going this way and it's opposite of what Christ says, it's hard. Let's be honest, it's hard to say, stand firm. 
Because if they stand firm, their friends will most likely belittle them, make fun of them, and even reject them. Teach them that it's okay because what they say about you doesn't matter. It's what Christ says about you. What does Christ say about you? The encouragement of Christ is what he says about us and what he has done for us. Are you encouraged in Christ? You need to encourage yourself in Christ. If you're feeling down and beaten up and overwhelmed and don't know what to do, go through Scripture. Google it if you have to. What does Christ say about me? What is my encouragement in Christ that he rescued you from the dominion of darkness and brought him into the kingdom of his light? That's, there's no greater encouragement than that, that you were rescued from certain death, from the wrath of God. He rescued you. Well, if that doesn't encourage you, I don't know what will. If, if winning a lottery is a greater encouragement to you than contemplating the salvation of Christ... There's something wrong. The salvation of Christ should be our greatest encouragement. He saved me by his own righteousness. If you have any encouragement, he says, any encouragement in Christ, the first essential humility is that I am encouraged in Christ, that I realize that it is not I, but Christ through me. Second, he says, is that of love. If you have any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love. Of course, love is agape. We are called to love one another. Jesus said to the disciples on the last night in John 13, 34 and 35, he says, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another. Have you ever been comforted by the love of somebody? When you're feeling down and out and you need the encouragement of Christ and, 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 and Christ shows up, so to speak, in the form of somebody from church and they come and they love you, and they come alongside you, you have any comfort in love? We're to love one another, the Bible tells us. Romans 12, 10 says, love one another in brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Love one another with brotherly affection. Another essential of humility is to love. Because to love means to, I'm going to consider you better than me. I'm going to meet your needs as opposed to my own. Love also says that I'm not going to see you in the negative, that I'm going to, I'll see that you maybe have faults, we all have faults, but I'm not going to come at you because of your faults. I'm going to help you through your faults. I'm going to help you through your shortcomings. James Boyce writes this, the late James Boyce writes this, Christians have a duty to see more than another Christian's faults. Christians must also see the person and they must live, they must love him or her with a love pattern on the love with which God the Father loved us. The person who really loves the other Christian this way will not seek to separate, separate from him because he is cantankerous or because she sees some minor, doctrinal, minor doctrine differently. 
Think about that for a second. We'll not separate because he is cantankerous. When's the last time you heard the word cantankerous? How many of you are cantankerous? Which you probably all at times were cantankerous, right? How many of us separate because we see something, a minor doctrinal difference? It says he will seek to know him, to learn from him, and to help him on spiritually as together they advance in the Christian life. Do we love one another in such a way that we move towards each other, we help each other, we encourage and build one another up in the most holy faith? If all we're doing is looking for what's wrong, guess what? You'll find what's wrong. You'll find a lot of wrong. That doesn't mean we ignore what's wrong or or what could be improved upon, but if we laser in on what's wrong, that's wrong. Thank you for getting that. (laughs) The other is participation in the Spirit. You cannot be humble without being full of the Spirit. Participation is koinonia, fellowship, communion, fellowship. We are participants with the Holy Spirit. You know, he's often the forgotten person of the Trinity. There's the Holy Spirit who has opened your eyes to the truth of who God is. It is the Holy Spirit who sanctifies you. It is the Holy Spirit who, when you read God's word, opens your eyes that you would understand what is written on these pages. That is Him. Are you participating in the Holy Spirit? Do you have participation with the Holy Spirit? Do you seek to know the Holy Spirit? When you come to your Bible in the mornings or when you have your personal time, and I hope that you have some, or when you come to church or even before you go to bed on Saturday night, ask the Holy Spirit, prepare my mind to hear from you. Teach me wondrous things in your law. Show me great and mighty things which I do not yet know. That's what the Holy Spirit does. You have participation in the Holy Spirit. Has He been illumining you in the things of God? It takes humility to say, I'm going to let the Holy Spirit teach me. We go into this and say, oh, I'm going to look at the Greek and I'm going to this, and I'm going to come to an understanding of what God's Word says. No, let the Holy Spirit teach you. Because when we go at it ourselves, say, I'm going to learn, I'm going to know, uh, our pride creeps in. But we let the Holy Spirit teach us. We say, thanks be to God that he has opened my eyes. Not that I have come to such wonderful knowledge. Paul says to the church in Corinth, He says, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. It's one of the greatest verses of the Trinity right there. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Paul says, if you have encouragement in Christ, comfort from love and a participation of the Spirit, and if you have any affection and sympathy. Spelanknon, it's not going to come up. That's not there. I didn't put it this week, but we know the word. It means, it means the bowels, the inner gut, your guts, right? To use my version, the guts. When you, feel, you ever feel something so deeply, where do you really feel it? Right here. Just deep inside you. It says if you have affection and sympathy. It literally means compassion 
in the bowels or the inner self. It takes humility to have compassion on somebody. To have a deep love and affection and sympathy for someone else, particularly someone who may be annoying, someone who is hurting. We are told as God's children in the book of Colossians, that is the very thing that we are to put on. To put on, as putting on a, on, on a coat. Colossians 3.12 says, put on then as God's chosen ones, holy and beloved, compassionate hearts. Compassionate hearts, along with kindness and humility and meekness and patience. Are these things characteristics of your life? They're against what the natural self says. Or the natural self wants. I don't, the heck with you, man. I'm, I'm in it for me. This is about me. Remember, last week, well, a couple weeks ago, I preached the sermon, what? It's all about you. What's it really mean to be it's all about you? That, it's, that I'm about you, not I'm about me. Deferring to one another. These are the legs, if you would, uh, of humility, which results in what I would say would be the seat. So you got these four legs and you got the seat, the seat of single-mindedness. Listen to what Paul says. Have these things, but complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being full of cord and of one mind. Same mind and of one mind. He says it twice in one verse. The word mind there is phroneo. It means to have an attitude. How many of you have an attitude? How many people met somebody with an attitude, right? Here it's not attitude like in a bad way. You know, you know when, you've, when in marriage sometimes and with your kids, you go, what do you got an attitude for? Like, What's your problem? It's not that kind of attitude. It's the way of thinking. It means to set one's mind on, to think in a particular manner. Paul says, have a single mind. He's speaking to the church. You as a church think with a singular mind. It's not everybody has their own opinions and my own thoughts and, and everybody's opinion and thoughts matters and your truth is your truth. No. Your truth is not your truth. Truth belongs to God. God is truth. He defines what is true and we are to put our minds in line with how He thinks of what He says. The Bible speaks consistently of the Christian faith being a thinking religion. We live in a generation where people feel, we feel, well, I feel this way about it, so I'm going to go out and protest, and I'm going to burn down buildings, and I'm going to this, and I'm going to that, because I feel this. No logic to it whatsoever. Christianity, first and foremost, is a thinking religion. It has to do with your mind. That's why Paul writes in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. By what? The renewal of your mind. And when your mind is renewed, you can test and discern what is the will of God. What is good and acceptable and perfect. We're told over and over and over again that in the church we are to have the same mind. To think the same way. Does that mean we have to agree on everything about the Bible? No. Do we have to agree on the essentials of how salvation comes about? Absolutely. Salvation is by faith through grace. 
That's it. It's by what Jesus Christ has done for me, what Jesus applies to me, and what I apply to Jesus. Jesus applies to me his righteousness. I apply to him my sinfulness. Do we have to agree about the end times? No. Within the eldership here, I think we would say, we don't all have the same exact views on the end times. It's not a central doctrine. But on the essentials of the Christian faith, we need to have the same mind. If we don't have the same mind, we're going to be splintered. If you don't have the same, if you say, if you sit here week after week, go, oh, yeah, but I really disagree with that. You know, he's always harping on that. He's always saying that, but I don't really, then what's it cause? It causes division in your own heart and attitude in your own heart that's not right. If you really disagree and you're very strongly against what we would believe here, this, it might not be the church for you. That's a, you, whoa, what are you saying? No, we need to be unified. We can't have division or attitudes. Have this mind in you, that which is in Christ. We're talking about making robots? No. We're talking about people who think the same about the Lord Jesus Christ. Do I want you to stay? If you have that difference, you do think differently on something, come talk to us. Don't let it become a thing that festers. We might find that, you know what? We can, on some things, agree to disagree. If you come and tell me, if you say, Pastor, I want to talk to you, because, you know, I really believe that there's many ways to Jesus Christ, that my Buddhist friend or my whatever can really have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ, I'm going to disagree with you. Well, I'm not going to disagree with you. Jesus will disagree with you. Because we'll say, hey, this is what Jesus says. No one comes into the Father except through me. That's an exclusive statement. There's no one. Hmm, I wonder what he means by that. No, no one comes to the Father except through me. Simple. There's no more discussion about it. You understand what I'm saying? Don't let things fester. Don't let things, but ah, just a, you know what? You may think it's small, but it's something for you. You have a question about something. Come and ask. We'll be glad to answer. I had a friend of mine uh, text me just the other day. says, hey, I, I just got to know, uh, uh, was the Bible only written in Greek? Like that was a question for them. Yeah, no, it wasn't. Okay, thanks. It might be something as easy as solved like that. Help us work through. I had this morning in our Sunday school, somebody asked me about election. I don't really understand it. Okay, let's talk about it. Let's, let's work through this. We're not going to be against each other. A house divided cannot what, Jesus said? Stand. Don't we see that principle being worked out in our nation right now? We are a nation that is completely divided. And our nation is crumbling before our very eyes. How you think matters. What you believe. He says, have the same mind. Complete my joy by having the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. How we think, the attitude that we have of our approach to Jesus and his word matters. He goes on to say this. This is how you have the same mind. 
Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. What a great balance there is right there. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. That is completely against human nature. The natural man says, I'm in it for me, and it's about me, and I will do something for you only if it benefits me. I'm going to use you. God says no. Do nothing from selfish ambition. But in humility, count others more significant than yourselves. What an amazing statement that is. It says, let each one of you look not only to his own interests. In other words, don't forget about yourself. It's not that you become a doormat and you don't matter. You have your interests. But also about the interest of others. That's why the church, to be single-minded, is so important. Because there may be things that happen in people's lives. And they'll call the pastor. You know, people often, often will joke with me, or maybe they're serious. Oh, you only work one day a week. Well, then don't call me during the week. Right? Um, and I, obviously call me. But tragedy happens. Right? And, 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 and the, the big things of life never happen at a convenient time, right? I mean, when do you get the flat tire? When you're on your way to vacation, you've got to get to the doctor's, right? Nothing ever happens conveniently. But when life happens and you need somebody, you call me. If I can, I'll come. If it's a situation where, you know what? My daughter's about to go to graduation from high school. I cannot come help you. I'm going to look to my own interest. Because I know that there's a group of people who can come and meet your need. You understand what I'm saying? How the church works like that? That's how we are to work. To be able to call upon. Yeah, we have three other pastors who will do everything they can. But it's not just the pastor. It's all of us together. Of one mind. I'm here for each other. I'm here to help and build up the body as much as I can. And a lot of that is just meeting somebody's very practical need. He says, this is the example of Christ. The example of humility, now the example of Christ. Have this mind among yourselves. Here we go again. How many times are you going to say, have this mind, this way of thinking... Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Listen to what he says. Have this mind, it's yours in Christ Jesus. Jesus makes all the difference in the way we think. I will never, not in my, I will only, if it, like I said, if it will benefit me, I'll think about you. If I can get something out of it in my natural self. But in Christ I have a different way of thinking that is no longer about me. It's all about you. 
Have this mind which is yours in Christ Jesus. Do you ever think that you can have the mind of Christ? What an amazing thing that God would give us the ability to think the way he thinks. Paul, writing to the church in Corinth, says this, For who has understood the mind of the Lord so as to instruct him or to be his counselor? And you often heard me say, me. I instruct God all the time. I tell him, well, this is really the best way to do it. But he says this, but we have the mind of Christ. I can think like Christ if I have participation in the Holy Spirit. If I have fellowship in the Holy Spirit. I'm in God's Word and I understand what God is teaching me about my role within the church, my role within God's kingdom. I have the mind of Christ. And the mind of Christ is almost always it is opposite of the way the world thinks. If this is the way the world would think about it, you can almost be sure this is the way Christ will think about it, the opposite way of it. What kind of mind did Christ have? Look what it says in verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped, something to hold on to. Maybe you struggle with understanding these verses. And, then, and, and granted, I'm going to be honest, there's mystery in this. The God-man of the hypostatic union, if you want to use the theological term. Don't get caught up in it. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God something to be grasped. How do I understand that? Well, i got to look at the next two verses. Scripture is its own interpreter. Scripture interprets Scripture. But he emptied himself, verse 7, by taking on the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. What does it mean he emptied himself? That's been a, 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 a great debate over the centuries. What does it mean that Christ emptied himself? Did he cease to become God? No. Jesus Christ was 100% God, and he was 100% man. From conception to death, he was 100% God and 100% man. Only human being to have, I don't want to say duality, but in some ways a duality. What it means by he emptied himself, taking on a form of servant, being born in the likeness of men, what this is telling you is what has happened before the world was ever created. Before the world ever came to be, when God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, in perfect unity, having the same essence, said we're going to create a world, and we know, because we know all things, the world is going to fall, man is going to rebel, and man's going to need to be saved, because we created human beings. First, remember, God created you. God created you special. God values your life, and God wants a relationship with you. That was last week. Because of those truths, because God knows those things and God planned out those things, he says, we're going to make a way for a redeemer to come. And the son said, I will leave the glory of heaven and I will come to earth and I will breathe the dust of earth, the song says, right? Uh, I will breathe the dust of earth, live a perfect, wonderful life, holy life, never once sinning, falling short of the glory of God, I will die on a cross so that a relationship between God and man is established. 
That's what it means. He says, it wasn't something I'm, you know, he, he's not saying, I'm going to, you know what? I'm staying in heaven. The heck with everybody else. No, I'll go. I'll humble myself. Verse 8 says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. If you want to have a picture of considering others better than yourself, there it is. Jesus says, they're worth me leaving heaven and dying for. And do you view the brothers and sisters in your church as worth dying for? You may not have to die physically, but in terms of dying, I'm willing to put aside my schedule. I'm willing to put aside my finances, maybe, my time, all those things, when it's necessary. So God says that's what makes a church. We're going to see this truth is going to be played out more and more as the days get more and more wicked, as persecution comes. That's the kind of church that God is going to have. You think brothers and sisters in North Korea hate each other? They can't wait to be with each other. They can't wait to fellowship around God's word. Do they do it in secret and fear? Yes. But they can't wait to be with each other. Are you longing to be here on Sunday mornings? And should I say Sunday evenings, 6 o'clock tonight? Because of what Jesus has done, this is what God the Father gives to Jesus. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. We've all heard that verse. We know that verse. What's it mean? Every single human being who has ever been born from Adam to the last person to be born will declare that Jesus Christ is Lord. Some will do it to their salvation. The vast majority will do it to their damnation. Because when Christ returns and judgment is made, everyone will acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that acknowledgement, if you have not done it prior, in that acknowledgement, you're admitting that my, my way of thinking was wrong, my life was wrong, Jesus is right, but it's too late at that point. Have you determined today? Do you know now that Jesus Christ is Lord? Have you settled that question? Is it in your heart and settled and saying, I am not going to compromise on it? James tells us this. Humble yourselves, therefore, before the Lord, and he will exalt you. Just as Christ humbled himself and the Lord exalted him, it's true for us. If you act in humility, let God exalt you. Let another mouth praise you and not your own, the Proverbs tell us. There's no greater praise can come than from God's mouth. And then we see the exhortation to humility. The exhortation. Verses 12 to 13. Therefore, my beloved, as you have always obeyed, 
So now, not only in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Oh, there's another verse. You ever wondered about that? How do I work out my own salvation with fear and trembling? Something I got to do? Yes and no. You got to couple that with verse 13. For it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. God saved you. God's empowered you through participation in the Spirit to understand His Word, to grow in His Word, to grow in, in, in living a holy and a righteous and a Christian life. That is working out your salvation in fear and trembling because God has enabled you to do it, to will and to work for His good pleasure. But we often make the mistake that this verse is for individuals. This is a book that is written to the church. We, as a body of believers, need to collectively work out our church's salvation with fear and trembling. Uh, uh, Philip Ryken, I think, says it the best in his commentary. He says this, Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. Does not refer primarily to the salvation of individual believers, but to working out our salvation within the church, the body of Christ. The application of this text is first corporate, how the church must conduct itself, and then individual. This is a both-and text that focuses first on the communal conduct of the church, which, of course, includes individual behavior. The challenge to work out your own salvation to the Philippians was both to all of them as a body and to each of them as its members. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling within the body. How are we a sanctifying force in our community? How are we living as a body of believers? We're, you know, as the old saying goes, you're only as strong as the what? The weakest link. We want to make sure everybody's growing. Everybody's is, is, is excelling in the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, of having comfort, encouragement in the love of God. We need to build the church. Your Christian life is not a, ma- is not a personal matter. It is a kingdom matter, manifesting itself both privately and corporately. How do you practically work out your salvation with fear and trembling? What's it look like in an everyday thing and on a daily basis? Well, I think 2.14 tells us this. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Do all things without grumbling or disputing. Any grumblers? Anybody grumble this morning? Yeah, we got, we're grumblers, aren't we, by nature? What kind of things do we grumble at? Grumble at traffic. We grumble that somebody's in the bathroom when I want to be in the bathroom. We grumble when there's, you know, the last person, there's no toilet paper left. We grumble because it's, it's on the wrong way. Who put it on the wrong way? And, right? There's things we grumble about that have no, have no real significance. We're naturally grumblers and complainers. 
That's our natural disposition. It says, do all things without grumbling or complaining. The word grumbling is gognismos. It means to murmur or muttering. So now you can say to somebody, they start complaining, are you gognismosing? Is that what you're doing? Right? Do all things without complaining. So when you're called upon to come alongside somebody in the body of Christ who needs help, you're called to sacrifice your time or your schedule, perhaps your money, or whatever it may be, because somebody's in need, you do it without grumbling. You do it without complaining. You do it joyfully. Paul, writing to the church in Rome, says this, in Romans 12, 8, that the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. That verse was for me in taking care of my dad. God always got me with that. Because you know, most of you have known my dad. He was losing his mind. He wasn't, you know. It was hard. And I had to remind myself that I'm cleaning up my father. I'm showering my father. I'm... Do it with mercy. Do, do this mercy with cheerfulness. It's a hard thing. You want to die to yourself? Serve somebody who cannot help themselves. You see parents who have children with disabilities where they are incapable of helping themselves. I, 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 we got a couple sitting here who, you know, sadly their son passed away, but I told them, I would see you. And it always reminded me of a picture of Christ. If you drive on, the, on, uh, on Terrace Ave and it turns into Hackensack in, in Woodridge, and every once in a while you will see a handicapped kid on a bike with his parent behind him. I almost want to cry. That's the picture of Christ. That's what Christ does for us. He does it with cheerfulness. Do we come alongside and are we cheerful? Am I able to help you? Cheerfully? Or is my heart far from you? You know, the Proverbs say about, he goes, watch out when you go to the house of a rich man. When he sets out a meal for you, be careful, because he'll tell you, eat and drink and be merry, but his heart is not with you. Do acts of mercy. Come alongside people. Cheerfully. You know, God says even about your giving. God loves a what kind of giver? A grumbling giver? He loves a cheerful giver. Why? Because God knows that's what makes the difference inside you. We live in a world that is not full of cheerfulness. Angst and anger and anarchy all around. God says, be cheerful. Do everything without grumbling or disputing. The word disputing means a, a dialogamos. It means reasoning. It means thought or the balancing of accounts. Now think about that. That actually makes sense. If you ever talk to somebody or, or, or come alongside somebody to help somebody, maybe even correct somebody, and the first thing they do is, yeah, well, what about our kids are good for this, isn't it? Your kid does something. 
Your child does something, they leave the dish or whatever, and you say, hey, clean up your dish. Oh, yeah, well, what about they left their dish? Oh, that has nothing to do with what I'm talking about right now. But that's, that's the kind of thing where it reasons it out. It's the lawyer, as John Oates would say, inside you. He, you understand what I'm saying here, right? That again, I'm going to argue this. I'm going you know, to get out of this. I'm, I'm going to make it so that I'm right and you're wrong. And people who are super smart like John can actually do that. Doesn't that, doesn't that frustrate you to no end? <laughs> right? Sorry, John. John is no longer that way. He's no longer that I don't live with him either, so I don't know. But I, I got to believe he's not. But you know that type of person. Don't sit there and go, well, you know what? How can I not help so-and-so? You ever do that? There may be real reasons why you cannot. Like I said, if my daughter is graduating and, and you, hey, there's other people going to help you. Whatever it may be. Take care of your own needs, but the needs of others. But don't look for ways to not help somebody when you can. Do not withhold good, the Proverbs tell us. Do not withhold good to those who deserve it when it is in your power to act, the Proverbs tell us. To do all things without grumbling or disputing is to show that you are a servant saint of Christ Jesus. It is how the world will know that you love God and each other. They will know that you are my disciples by your love for one Another, Jesus said. Paul says, you do this because it's going to show the world something. That you may be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Do everything without grumbling or complaining. You set yourself apart from every other human being. It shows that you are blameless and innocent children of God in a crooked and twisted generation. And man, do we live in a crooked and twisted generation. The other exhortation is to hold fast to the word of life. Hold fast to the word of life. So that in the day of Christ, I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in me. To hold fast the word of life, to God's word. Hold fast to it. Put it in your heart. Put it in your mind. That you as the church, that us as the church, we have the same mind about the word of God. Hold it fast. That you may prove yourself a workman who needs not be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. Not how I want it to be. Oh, well, I think, well, this or that about it. No, rightly dividing the word of truth. The only way to rightly divide the word of truth is to divide it as God says to divide it. Paul says this. Even if I am being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. What is Paul saying here? Paul's saying, if, if your growth in Christ, in the suffering that you are facing, and the persecution that is coming upon you, if in it all my purpose was to pour my life into you, that's good enough. That's all, that, that is more than enough for me. 
says, I am glad and I rejoice with you all. But he says, but also, likewise, you should also be glad and rejoice with me. Because his life literally was being poured out. He's in prison writing this letter. Being in prison for being a servant of Jesus Christ. Hello, he's reminding them, listen, having the same mind, coming alongside, pour out yourself, expect nothing back. Expect nothing back. And then he tosses in, because I just, I had to make it all ease, the extras. The extras. And he says, this is what Christ is your example. Here's the exhortation to, to humility. Here's the example. Here's the exhortation to it. And now let me give you a couple guys who actually are flesh and blood that you see, you've touched, and you know who are just like what I described. And we're, not gonna, we're just going to read it. You can, you can study this for yourself. First, he talks about Timothy. He says, I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I too may be cheered by news of you. For I have, listen to what he says about Timothy. For I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. Now imagine if you're Titus and you're reading this. Wait a second, Paul, did you just slight me? He said, Paul, I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth. How as a son with a father he has served me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. Now here he is. He's looking to the interest of them. But he's also saying, but I need to look to my own interest here for a minute. Timothy's going to stay with me for a little bit, then I'm going to send him to you. But there's no one like Timothy. He genuinely cares about your interests. Then he talks about Epaphroditus. That's how you say his name. I guess if there's two guys in Scripture you want to be like, it's like Timothy or you want to be like Epaphroditus. Paul says, And I, will, and I trust in the Lord that, I sh- that shortly I myself will come also. Well, we know that turned out to not be true because he died in Rome. So he says, I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your message. So Epaphroditus was from the church of Philippi. They were, Epaphroditus is the guy that they sent with money to Paul in prison to help care for Paul's needs. Because in the Roman prison, if people didn't bring you food or care for you, well, you just didn't eat. Rome wasn't going to take on the burden. And so Epaphroditus was the guy they sent. He's your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. So he got sick somewhere along the way. A word got back to them and they didn't know. They heard bits and pieces. You know, you think communication is bad today with the in texting and all that, right? And we can miscommunicate. Imagine having to travel thousands of miles to get a word back to somebody. They heard that he was ill. He says, indeed, he was ill near to death. But God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but also on me, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. How good is God? 
says, I am more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may, ha- that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy and honor, and, su- and honor such men. For he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. So he says, hey, here's what you need. Here's the essentials of humility. Here's the example of Christ. Here's the encouragement to humility. And here's the extras. Here's Timothy and Epaphroditus. Just look at their life. You'll get what I'm saying to you. And so what do we do with all this? Let's strive as a church and as individuals to what Paul encouraged the church in Philippi to do. In chapter 1, verses 27 to 30, it says, Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or I'm absent, I may hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engage in, the same, suffer, engage in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I have. How do we do that? We follow the essentials of humility, the example Christ of humility, the exhortation to consider others better than ourselves, and look around at those who live this out, the extras. What's the extras God's put into your life? Has God graced you enough to say that, you know what, there's somebody you can point to in your life who is an example of this. And honor them and follow their example. Father, help us. Help us to be like-minded servants of Christ. For the sake of the glory of your kingdom, we ask it. Amen. Let's stand, let's close in the song. God from whom all blessings flow, praise Him all creatures here below, praise Him above ye heavenly host. Praise Father, Son, and Holy Ghost. Amen. Amen.